Well, it is, it is my pleasure to introduce to you an alumnus, an alumna of Wheaton MDiv Fuller Theological Seminary, PhD Fuller Theological Seminary. Laura Robertson Harbert joined Fuller Seminary in 2014 as the Dean of Chapel and Spiritual Formation. In July 2015, she also joined the School of Psychology faculty as an assistant professor of psychology. She came to Fuller from a 25-year career as a clinical psychologist and Presbyterian pastor. Where have you been all these years? Now, um, an alumna of Fuller School of Psych, she also has an MDiv from Fuller. Um, she's an adjunct, prof adjunct professor in the area of pastoral care at North Park Seminary, anyone from the Covenant Church? Anyone? Not one? Okay. Yeah, okay, one. Okay. North Park Seminary. And she served as a parish associate for both First Press Hollywood and, of course, First Press of Evanston, Illinois. Now, this is the sentence that I brought up the paper because I couldn't memorize it. Dr. Harbert is especially passionate about the ways that the process of spiritual formation is a rich intersection of psychology and theological dynamics. Now, I have no idea what that means, but it sounds really, really great, and I know it's, I know it's really going to work for us. So I'm going to read it again. She's passionate about the ways that the process of spiritual formation is a rich intersection of psychological and theological dynamics. Now, the second time you've heard it, you get it, and you realize this is, this is right up our alley. This is stuff we really need. I had the chance to sit down with her at Fuller Seminary, and, and I'm, I cannot more strongly endorse her as a human being, as a warm, listening person, and we are really excited to have her here and to be presenting to us this week. And I know you'll get to know her, and you are going to be just as impressed with her as I am personally, and uh, I think we have a new friend. Let me introduce to you, and please welcome Dr. Laura Robinson-Harbert. Thank you, Neil. I have been a West Coast Presbyterian pastor for most of these years, but I think part of why I didn't come was that I've been serving primarily as a clinical psychologist, and we don't have study leave, hello. <laughs> So you're very picky about your days off when you have your own business. And so I think that's, but I'm, I am so grateful, very, very grateful and honored that I get to be a part of these days with you. When I was a, a parish associate at First Press Hollywood, I had the incredible gift of becoming friends with Dale Bruner. Um, Dale came from Whitworth at that time. He, ret he retired right when those years when I was there and began teaching his famous Sunday school class out of his debt of gratitude to Henrietta Mears. And Dale and I became good friends, and we actually began speaking a lot together um, since about 2000 or 2001. We've done many retreats together at a place in Texas called Laity Lodge, where similar to this, he would do a biblical piece, and I would do something that would be more about relationships or emotional health or spiritual formation or something like that. My very favorite Dale Bruner story is one time, um, I am in a second marriage, and at the time, I had only been married for two years. 
and Dale and Kathy were celebrating their 48th year of marriage. And so we decided to do a marriage retreat together at Lady Lodge. And we thought, we'll look at marriage from these different angles of what, if, what is it like to be married to the same person for 48 years? And that has all of its own blessings and joys and challenges. And what is it like to have gone through a divorce and to have marriage been something that was very painful and to open your heart up to risk again and love again? and be in a new marriage. And so we thought this would be a really exciting way that we would do a couples retreat with a very different perspective. And right before the first evening session, um, all the leaders of the retreat meet in this one room and talk about the, the weekend and who's doing what and the artists introduce, there's artists that come on this retreat. And so we're just all sitting there talking about what we're doing. And I was totally joking. And I said, Dale, I had this great idea on the airplane. How about on Saturday we do a seminar on sexuality across the lifetime in a marriage? How about it, Dale? And Kathy, if those of you who know Dale know Kathy, Kathy got very excited about the idea. She thought it was a fabulous idea. And Dale wanted to crawl under the couch. But lo and behold, I'm sure it's because Kathy made him do it, we did it on Saturday, totally off the cuff. We did it. And of course, it was like the best part of the entire weekend. Was, and the thing that that says to me about Dale that I love so much is his openness to grow. And he did tell me how part, he knows how part of how he needs to grow is to become more of like a real human being and not just a scholar. And that you all gave him a nickname or something at one point, Biff, right? It was about something about Luther's prayer life, right? So I think he has a t-shirt. So I, I would like a nickname and a t-shirt by the end of the weekend. I don't know if that's kind of, no, I don't want that, no. Okay, all right. Okay, I take that back. No, all right. No, I do want to say one thing. I already, um, this is a little tube of toothpaste. I realized when I arrived, I'd forgotten toothpaste. And it was right before dinner and the bookstore closed at six. And so I ran down and then I also forgot my wallet. So I'm in the bookstore trying to talk the lady into giving me the toothpaste and promising her, I promise I'll pay her tomorrow. And she could come and publicly shame me tomorrow night if I didn't bring her the money. And my new friend, Christine from Salt Lake City popped out the dollar seven and bought me toothpaste. So... I already feel, feel very, very loved and welcomed. Well, I want to tell you just a tiny bit about my story, because one of the things that I really do, I am learning about spiritual formation, is it always comes from our roots and the soil that we've been planted in. You have been formed, I have been formed, from the minute we were a group of cells inside of our mother's womb. Forming has been going on, not just physical forming, but emotional Emotional forming, physical, all kinds of formation begins when life begins. And so I think one of the ways that I'm trying to really work with spiritual formation at Fuller is to help people really understand and pay attention to their own traditions and where they come from and what that has to do with what needs to be formed in or maybe out of them. So I want to tell you just a little bit so you have a sense of, of me. I grew up in an agnostic or atheistic home. I think it shifted different years. Sometimes my parents were agnostic, and sometimes I think they really had given up the seeking altogether. My dad was a colonel in the army, and he was a surgeon, and he was a self-made person. He had grown up in a very poor family, never would have made it through medical school if it wasn't for ROTC. Um, he was a very, very good man, very hard worker, but I was really taught that Christians were kind of weak people, 
that didn't have a lot going for them in this life, and they had put all their chips, so to speak, on the next life. And so really, education and self-reliance were what we worshipped. That really was in our family. The Time Life books were our Bible. If you had any questions, it was back then when there actually would be a bookshelf that would have <laughs> books that would have outdated information. Um, and so I, I grew up, I think, having a sense that you are to be a good person and you are to work hard and, and that, that's what it is to have a good life. Well, what happened was the town that we lived in, we were living in, uh, my dad's last station before he retired was Fort Ord. It's no longer an army base. And so we were living on the Monterey Peninsula, and the best school in our area was a Catholic girls' school. And that's the only reason I went there is because they had the best education. But when I was there, I met Sister Patricia Bruno. And I didn't have words for it then, but Sister Patricia Bruno was filled with the Holy Spirit. She emanated God. She had a grace and a kindness and a depth and a love about her that I had never experienced in a human being before. And I was so drawn to her. I thought it was really odd that she wore a wedding ring on her right hand and told me that she was married to Jesus. I thought that was really strange. But I couldn't deny that there was something about being in her presence that I just wanted to be around her. At the same time, there was a Young Life leader that started coming to our campus and having lunch with girls, which I also thought was kind of weird that a middle-aged guy was coming and hanging out with you know, teenage girls at the, at the Catholic girls' school. But um, he was a wonderful human being. <laughs> and long story short, um, I ended up um, going to Malibu camp and it was right, at, again, in, in God's amazing timing. Um, my parents, who I never heard argue one time in my whole life, ended up divorcing this one summer. Never did counseling. There wasn't another person involved. There wasn't addiction. Um, it was a decision that my mom had made that she didn't want to be married anymore. And that very same summer that everything was getting unraveled, I went to this Young Life camp. And although, again, almost like Sister Patricia Bruno, these words about a man that came and died this torturous death and somehow his blood washed me clean, that sounded gross. I didn't understand that, didn't like that. But there was something happening inside of me, again, that I could not deny, that I was being drawn into this story. I was being compelled to know, want to know more, to ask questions. And I ended up giving my life to Christ when I hardly even understood what that meant. I just knew I wanted to do that. And I think at a deep level, what I really wanted is I wanted to experience a quality of life that I saw in these people that I had never seen. It makes me think of John 1 when it talks about the life of Jesus being the light of the world. There was a life and a vibrancy and a love that I was really aware I was lacking in my life. So I began uh, my junior year of high school. My young life leader would drive her little yellow Volkswagen and have lunch with me, and I asked her so many questions. And I think part of the soil I was raised in, in this very secular humanist home, is that I, to this day, am a struggler and a doubter. That I think the, the wonderful gift my, get, my dad gave me was that ask questions, be curious. And I love that. But there's the other side of it that I think for me sometimes faith is a struggle. I just had to recently write my statement of faith as I'm transferring from the San Jose Presbytery to the San Gabriel Presbytery. 
And again, what just came out of me is I'm, I'm wanting to rework it again, and what do I believe now? The first thing that I put in there is that I really feel like my statement of faith is the one that Peter says after they, you know, the disciples listen to Jesus talking for the first time about you will eat my body and you will drink my blood. And they have no idea what that means, and it sounds gross. It's confusing. And it just, you know, the scriptures say many left him that day. And he turns to Jesus and says, are you going to leave me too? And, and this is my statement of faith. Where would I go? For only you have the words of life. I have come to believe that you're the Holy One of Israel. That, that to me is the closest chunk of scripture that encapsulates my faith. I have no idea where I'd go. I don't want to go anywhere. But I do feel at times, sometimes trapped or stuck in a faith, in a life that sometimes doesn't always feel like it fits me super well. I was ordained, um, okay, wait, I'm skipping ahead. Okay, one thing. All right, I had a, a Regent scholarship to Berkeley. Again, when this girls' school, they really pushed um, academics, and I had worked hard, and I'd gotten a Regent scholarship to Berkeley, but my young life leader in April of my senior year said, have you ever heard of Wheaton? And I hadn't. And this says something about the dysfunction of my family. It, it um, never had one conversation with my parents about college, but ended up my young life leader somehow got me connected. It was very different back then in 1977, getting into college, that somehow it was a matter of just a few phone calls, and I was accepted at Wheaton. I was put on a plane in Monterey, California, and sent to O'Hare. Had never seen, had never been to Chicago, had never seen the college. And because I was raised in the home I was, the fundamentalist part of Wheaton just went right over my head. I, I felt like I was on another planet, going to a church where women covered their heads. It was like, I'm in a time capsule. And then we'd go to someone's house, and the women would be in the kitchen making pot roast and mashed potatoes, and the men would be in the living room talking theology. But somehow, in the midst of those sociological things that felt so foreign to me, again, there was the life of Christ. There was a richness theologically. There was a depth. There were ways that I learned hymns. I loved my professors. I loved having to memorize a mighty fortress is our God before Christian history class. So there was just a wonderful um, way that God was forming me in this place that for many people, uh, it was the last place they wanted to be as a young adult. For me, it was an incredible, rich, deepening place of my faith. While I was there, I was working in Glen Ellen Presbyterian Church with a man named Gary Sattler, who was a youth pastor there. I don't know if any of you know Gary. He's in the L.A. area now. Gary was a youth pastor at that church, and we worked together. And I began noticing that kids in the youth group that struggled with anxiety or depression, kids that I knew were having a real difficult time in their homes, um, kids that seemed to just be a little different than the norm, had a very hard time being present in youth group. And back then, and I hope it's different some now, but youth group was super high energy, super extroverted, super boom, boom all the time. And so kids that were struggling really couldn't fit in. And so I began asking some questions to Gary and the senior pastor, Bill Enright, at the time. What do you do with people that have mental illness? What do you do with people in your congregation that have anxiety? What do you do with people that are depressed? I was a psych major, and I had taken psychopathology, so I said, what about someone with obsessive-compulsive disorder? What about schizophrenia? Somehow, the shalom of God includes these people. Like, what, what do we do? And that most of the answers that I got, which is not a bad answer, was we 
cultivate relationships with really good mental health professionals in our community, and we refer them. But somehow, I feel like God, right at that very moment, at that time in my life, planted a seed. What if the church became a place that had a little bit more to offer people that struggle with mental illness? What if there was a little bit more of a way that there was a refuge, that there was even at least education and knowledge and understanding? What if we could reduce the stigma of mental illness in the body of Christ? And so I, I feel like at that time, this dream was born, that I'd love to help the church be a more mentally aware and a more mentally healthy place. And this was way before I was a clinical psychologist and I saw a lot of pastors in psychotherapy, so I didn't even know what I was dreaming yet of the need for the church to be a more mentally healthy place. But that's what I really began to get excited about. And so at that time, Fuller was the only place where their school of psychology, you could get a PhD that was approved by the American Psychological Association and get an MDiv at the same time. So it was the only school I applied to. It was the only thing I wanted. My dad said, I will pay for a PhD program as long as you go anywhere that's not Christian. You went to a Christian college, don't go to a Christian graduate school. He said, Laura, if you want to eat apple pie, that's okay. But go to a bakery where they bake blueberry pie and cherry pie and apple, whatever pie, pecan pie. And then if you still want apple pie. And I just said, Dad, I've already decided. I, I really want apple pie, and I want apple pie the way Fuller makes it. So I'm going there. <laughs> and as a, a spunky 22-year-old, it was one of the best decisions I ever made to, in that way, not let money be something that determined that part of my life. And Fuller, again, was an incredible, incredible gift to me. Um, so I was ordained. Um, I was ordained in Chicago at the time after finishing Fuller, moved with my first husband to Chicago where he was on the staff at First Press Evanston as an associate, and I was a parish associate, and I was ordained to my work in a pastoral counseling center there in Winnetka, Illinois. And so I began my ministry as a clinical psychologist working with a Roman Catholic nun, an American Baptist, an Episcopalian priest, and we were all working together in an ecumenical counseling center. It was, those were wonderful years. Um, Spent the next 26 years both um, serving the church in all kinds of ways with, you know, preaching and adult education and retreats, but primarily my work was in my private practice office. I really felt like in my work as a psychologist, I was extending the healing ministries of Christ. Always wanted to be a hybrid of a psychologist and a pastor. So then we get to February of 2014. And it's the 50th anniversary of Fuller School of Psychology. And I was asked by the dean at that time, Winston Gooden, to come down and preach. There really are only two people that preach a lot that graduated from the School of Psych. One of them's John Ortberg and one of them's me. <laughs> so a little bit of a difference. But John came and did the big venue and I was preaching in chapel. And it was a delightful, wonderful, wonderful time. And after my preaching, Mark Laverton came up to me and said, I, I would like you to apply for this position at Fuller. And I had never thought of academia at all. And just to make a longer story short, just all these doors began open. My husband and I, who's my husband's a Presbyterian pastor, we began praying about this, our small group did, and it became very clear that this was where God was leading, much to my surprise and my husband's surprise. So he went to the session of his church. He was at Carmel Presbyterian Church. And he said, you know, God's clearly called my wife 
to Fuller, and her call is our call as a family, so I need to resign. So my amazing husband came, and for the first time since he was 18 years old, didn't work, didn't have a job, didn't know what was going on, but really felt like this was a step of faith for us as a family to move down to Pasadena. And after I said yes to this job, and after my husband had quit his job, I all of a sudden panicked. What have I done? I wonder how many people in this room have had that experience. <laughs> after you feel God's calling to something, you feel so certain, and then you step into it, and then you freak out. I was so, what, what am I doing? I knew the position meant that I was going to be administrative faculty, so I'd be teaching. I don't, I've never taught, I mean, I, I taught adjunct at North Park, but that's so different. What am I going to, I'm going to be at, I'm going to be at floor with Richard Peace, who's written 40 books on spiritual formation. I can't do this. I felt so overwhelmed. I felt so inadequate. I felt so, like, God, why are you calling me into this place that feels so over my head? And all of a sudden, what came literally almost every single day as I opened scripture was story after story after story of people that God calls who are not fully equipped. That the call does not mean at all that you feel fully equipped. In fact, very often, people that have been called into God's story have the exact same feelings that I felt. I can't do this. I don't know how to do this. And what I've realized now after being at Fuller for almost two years, coming in July, it'll be my two-year anniversary, Fuller has so many brilliant people who have written so much on spiritual formation, who have added so much. But Fuller doesn't need another scholar on spiritual formation. And they certainly don't need anyone that would in any way would feel like a competition, coming in and telling them how to do things. But what Fuller has really needed is someone that can listen. And again, that's a lot where spiritual formation begins, is with listening. And I, I do know how to do that. God gave me another gift that was an amazing comfort. And it was the passage, 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18. I want to read that to you in the English Standard Version because I really... This was an incredible gift. And this has really become the cornerstone for me of what I'm building in my work and spiritual formation at Fuller. 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. That spiritual formation is not some kind of uh, becoming a super elite, like Navy SEAL type of Christian. And I think sometimes it can end up being like that, that there's freedom. This is about freedom. There's not one way to do it. There's nothing to be compelled, no obligation, no guilt, no special thing that you get at the end. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. When I read that, it was like, okay, we all. So there's something about spiritual formation that's gathering people to do this together. Spiritual formation is not something that I go on my personal retreat where I have just my own personal rule of life and work on polishing my spiritual muscles by myself. 
There is something so important about spiritual formation that's doing it in the context of a we. We all. And we all with unveiled face. That's the part I liked the best because I've been working on helping people unveil their faces for 25 years. I do know something about helping people unveil their faces. And I loved it when, I, when, it, when this was so much apart. You un, so you come together, you unveil your face, and you behold the glory of the Lord. And somehow in that process of those three things together, not being alone, coming as a we, unveiling my face, and beholding the glory of the Lord, then we will be transformed. So in really wonderful Reformed theology, this is not something that we, in some effortful way, have to figure out how to get deeper, better, more contemplative, have a better prayer life, do this. Do this. It's not about that. It's about being with people. It's about learning in how, and I think this is a lifelong journey. What in the world does it mean for you to actually be transparent? First of all, even to yourself, with other people in God's presence, and what in the world do you think it means to live my life beholding God's glory? Now, part of what I think about that is this idea of spending my life fully present and looking for God. We live in such an unbelievably and increasingly so distracted world. We don't behold each other, let alone beholding God's glory. One thing I would do often in my private practice when I would have couples come in for couples therapy, and this was not unusual at all, and I totally get this, I'm the same way, when you're angry at someone, it's very difficult to look them in the eyes. And most of the time when couples would come in, they would look down, they would look out the window, you know, they would look at me, but they would never or very rarely look in each other's eyes. And so certainly not on my first session or second or maybe not my fifth, but at some point in working with a couple, I would ask them to stop and could we just have, could we just try this for 30 seconds? Or I just want you to look in that person's eyes. And what I would do if I was on a retreat, I didn't do this in the, my marital therapy sessions usually, every once in a while I did, but I would say, I'd like you to look into their eyes and try to imagine how God sees that person. Gaze upon them as you imagine God gazing upon this person. You know, there's been a lot of research done in psychology about the way that what we look at changes our brain. I mean, literally, literally changes our brain. Let alone the things that think of experience like this. Think about when you have gone and maybe traveled in some kind of country or done some kind of mission trip and what you have seen changed you. When you beheld a certain level of injustice or poverty. I believe I was changed when I beheld Sister Patricia Bruno and her love for God. That changed me. We are changed by what we behold. So as we together unveil our faces and we help each other behold God's glory, we will be transformed. That's part of what I'm really working on at Fuller is a, that kind of a, a perspective. What I wanted to talk about 
tonight and the next two times what I named the talk was spiritual formation in the trenches. And what I mean by that is really two things. First of all, for our denomination, we are in a battle right now. I know many of you have been literally in the trenches. You have been in battles. One definition of the word trench is um, a place of like shelter or protection from warfare. You have been in trenches. And if it's not denominational battles, there are trenches that we find ourselves in of what's happening in our families. When I got married 13 years ago to my second husband, I took on the role of a stepmother. Hardest thing I've ever done in the whole world. And if there are any of you here that are in blended families that would like a compassionate listening ear of what it's like to be a step-parent, I'm not kidding. I'll go on a walk with you. I would love to listen with you because it's very, very difficult. And I was in the trenches with these kids for years. I can say now, after 13 years of marriage, I am overwhelmingly grateful for answered prayer. And again, what happened is we just hung in there that I have very real, intimate, authentic, not perfect, but very intimate relationships with all five of our kids. And my three-step kids, we have been through rehab, we have been through legal battles, we have been through all kinds of stuff together. That was a trench. Some of you may be in trenches like that, things that are, have happened in your own personal or family life. There's medical trenches, things that are happening financially. You know, a lot of times the books on spiritual formation have on the cover like this, like, like a blurry waterfall over mossy rocks or like this kind of alpine meadow. You know, these, these you know, beautiful retreat-looking pictures. But actually, when we need to call on our spiritual formation is when we're sitting at the dinner table and our adolescent child is screaming at us, I hate you and I don't want to be in this family. Or you're opening one of those scary thin envelopes from the bank that says there just wasn't quite enough money in the account to cover that last check or three. That's the time, sitting around a really tense session meeting, around a table, when people are bickering and arguing, and you feel helpless. That's when we need to experience spiritual formation. So I want to talk some about that. But the other thing I'm very excited to talk about as well is the trench of your own inner resistance to spiritual formation. Because that's what I really f I feel is the most... What was that? That looked like a bird dropping. Um, what I'm really interested in is kind of that Romans 7 piece of what makes spiritual formation something that is so difficult. Like, I, I had to write a strategic plan. I'd never done that before. Boy, was that hard. Hated that. But I had to write a strategic plan, which was really a good exercise about how am I going to begin to work on spiritual formation for faculty, staff, and students at Fuller. And so one of the things I did is I tried to read everything I could on the history of spiritual formation at Fuller because they've been talking about it since 1947 when the seminary began. And there have been different things. I would love stories. That's the other thing. Those of you that were at Fuller at all different years and you have a story of how Fuller either formed you for good or for ill, I would love to hear that. Love to hear that. But, but what I really, as, as I was reading... What I realized is that Fuller was really built on the one hand to prove that evangelicals could be smart. Don't you think that's true? 
that, that was one big reason. And the other was that Fuller has this beautiful, creative, entrepreneurial spirit. And so from the very beginning, being this West Coast seminary and having the School of Psychology, and back then it was the School of World Mission, which became School of Intercultural Studies, having the Central Latino Program, the Fuller Youth Institute, you now can take a, an MDiv all in Korean and all in Spanish. And we're doing all this stuff now in China and in a seminary in Egypt and connecting with a seminary in Bolivia, all these entrepreneurial, exciting church planting initiative, on and on and on. But so much at Fuller that is about academics and entrepreneurial stuff is, I think, of like this movement. It's all up and out. It's like, let's go. It's creative, and it's also brilliant. But spiritual formation is often this kind of movement. It's, it's this kind of movement of, of down and in. And so I think just like at Fuller, what I'm describing may also describe you. A lot of pastors are more, I think, intellectual, theological, and entrepreneurial. That's just how you're wired. It's how a lot of ministry, I think, has even been kind of put out there of what successful ministry looks like, new programs. And what actually spiritual formation requires is often space and margin. And those are competing agenda. Those, those do not always naturally get into synchronicity with each other. So I want to look at both the trenches of your context, spiritual formation in your context. That's another thing I'm super excited about at Fuller. You know, we have people from 112 countries and 60 denominations. So what spiritual formation looks like for someone that grew up in East L.A., and what spiritual formation looks like for the young man I talked to from Nigeria who was literally kidnapped by Boko Haram, and a person from Ohio that came to Fuller because they were the best kind of guy in their youth group, and someone said, you need to go pro. And so he's there. <laughs> like, all these different people and all of their ways of thinking about life and ministry and spiritual formation. One, one professor, Johnny Ramirez Johnson, who's just a hoot, he's hilarious and he's creative and he's wonderful. He said, Laura, let's do a project together and let's look at spiritual formation in shame cultures versus spiritual formation in guilt cultures. Now, in some ways, spiritual formation for some people is taking things off, put, putting off the old self. There's things that in our formation we need to put off. I have to keep putting off my secular, humanist, rational part of me that gets seduced by intellectualism. And, and, but can I just tell you, I'm so grateful for the post-resurrection stories with Thomas. They make me so happy. I just read last week, and I'd never even read this before, in Luke, the one where he's touching, or this was, I don't remember if this was the Thomas, but anyway, the words are, they were touching his wounds, and it said they felt both joy and disbelief. Like those words are right there together in the Bible. That makes me feel very known and understood. But anyway, this idea of shame cultures and guilt, shame cultures and guilt cultures might have different ways that they're shaped and formed. So I want to look at that. But I also want to help you, and, and in your groups, I hear you do a lot of very open sharing. I'd like you to, if you want to, even take some of the time to talk about your own internal trenches. And I want to leave some time... Um, I'm going to only talk for about seven more minutes because I do want to leave some time for interaction and questions before the check-in. But I, I, brought, I wrote down some questions. I just sat down one day and I thought, okay, over 25 years of working with pastors, what were some of the questions and themes that came up a lot? 
for pastors that I saw in psychotherapy. And so these are some of the things that, that I wrote down that I heard a lot. Why am I feeling so lonely? Why are people not responding to my leadership? Is it me or is it them? Should I look for another call? How honest can I really be with people? And not just people in my church, but just people. What in the world does it mean to be a spiritual leader? I don't feel spiritual. I don't think I want to be a leader anymore. How do I meet my congregation's needs and at the same time meet the needs of my own family? Talk about competing agendas. So these are some of the questions that I'm really interested in not talking about spiritual formation in the abstract. Again, that's maybe the part that, that why I'm not an academic. I don't have a model. I don't have a seven-step plan. I don't have a, a way that I believe that even would work. I don't think it is one thing that you step into. I think it's being with people, understanding what it means to continue to unveil your face, and it's finding ways to behold God's glory. And in that intimacy with God and with other people and with myself, I'm brought into my true self. You know, it's interesting as I've been studying a lot of, I'm, I'm working with this one professor at Fuller in the School of Psychology. Her name is Joey Fung. She's a fascinating person. I don't know if any of you have heard of a program called the Harvey Fellows from Washington, D.C. They're scholars that are interested in intersecting kind of faith and science, and she was a Harvey Fellow. She's just a little tiny thing, can't be older than her 20s, but just a, packed with brains, head to foot, adorable. And she's working with a colleague of hers in Hong Kong, and she got a grant, a multi-million dollar grant from the Templeton Fund, or Templeton, Templeton people, and she's studying Christian mindfulness. What is mindfulness? What is secular mindfulness? What is mindfulness that kind of comes from a Buddhist perspective? And what is Christian mindfulness, which is really a lot like contemplation and meditation? And so she's developed these three different groups where people go and they, they take, they do exercises, they participate in groups. And she's got people that are Christian people, that are Buddhist people, that are non-religious. And she's looking, is there any different kind of efficacy in practicing mindfulness in these different, form, these different ways? She asked me to be a part of her grant by leading the students that are in her research lab. Once a month, we meet, and I lead them in a time of spiritual practice, and then I also give them a couple articles on Christian contemplation and meditation to read, to help them understand more about the Christian tradition of contemplative prayer. I love doing this. But as I've been reading these and leading this group, what I'm very aware of is, the, is people that study contemplative prayer, what they talk about is what changes you in silent prayer and contemplative prayer is this idea that first you sit alone in silence and what immediately comes up is what distracts you. And what distracts you is a fabulous indicator to you of where your mind is going. And it's often incredibly embarrassing and painful and disappointing. But it's also, if we can see it in the context of God's loving gaze, like this isn't a contest. You don't have to be the best prayer. You don't have to do this right. If we see it in the context that, Lord, help me learn, is my mind going to my rear end, that I'm fat and I can't fit into these pants? Is my mind going to my bank account? 
and how much money I have or how much money I spent or how much money my spouse spent? Is my mind immediately going to my kids? Is it going to food or sex or the internet? Like, where am I? And it's in quiet and contemplation that I actually can get an incredibly interesting, important picture about what's going on in my mind. And if I'm so busy all the time with tasks, we actually live in real denial with what's capturing us and shaping us, what we're beholding. It's just like I've tried to say to couples often when I do premarital counseling, believe it or not, what you fight about could be a gift. And what I mean by that is the things that create fights in an intimate relationship is when something vulnerable has been touched. And if you can look at it that way, that when we get in a fight, something vulnerable has happened. And I need to understand that about this person I love. And so if I can try to just slow down and say, okay, can we try this again? What did I say that made you react like that? What are you needing? What am I needing? Like literally, that is how love deepens. That crucible of conflict helps me know where your pain is. And so in a similar way, our intimacy with God, if we can recognize those things that get in the way, those things that are distracting us, then that's when we can just practice over time saying, God, help me not focus on my body. Help me maybe to make a different commitment to be good to my body by exercising more. But right now, can I just put that out of my mind? Or help me, Lord, recognize you've always provided for me. And so this anxiety I have about retirement or my bank account, I really don't need to obsess on that. So that's just, I think, the, the, the gift. That's a part of unveiling our face that happens when we sit in silence. Okay, and then finally, because I want to... Um, okay, I'll do that one tomorrow. I, have a, I, I love that. Okay, I'm going to end with a poem by Pierre Teilhard de Chardin that I love. Above all, it's called patient trust. Above all, trust in the slow work of God. We are quite naturally impatient in everything to reach the end without delay. We should like to skip the intermediate stages. We are impatient of being on the way to something unknown, something new. And yet it is the law of all progress that it is made by passing through some stages of instability. And that may take a very long time. And so I think it is with you. Your ideas mature gradually. Let them grow. Let them shape themselves without undue haste. Don't try to force them on as though you could be today what time, that is to say grace and circumstances working on your own goodwill, will make of you tomorrow. Only God could say what this new spirit gradually forming within you will be. Give our Lord the benefit of believing that his hand is leading you and accept the anxiety of feeling yourself in suspense and incomplete. Amen. Okay, we have about um, 14 minutes for any kind, I've heard that you guys, I hope this isn't like being examined on the floor of Presbytery though. <laughs> if anyone asks, wants to ask me a really hard question, 
I'll try, do my best, but I'm a little nervous right now, but I heard this is what you guys like to do, so I'm up for it. Okay. It really, okay, thank you. Hi, Laura. I'm, I'm going to ask one. Okay. And I wish I had someone erudite to quote. I don't. I have to quote Dr. Phil. Okay. <laughs> uh, Dr. Phil, when he talks about marriage with couples, will say, your spouse is not the enemy and that that person was put into your life for your good. And I'm thinking, as you work with pastors, mm -hmm. um, Churches, we think it's going to be fun and wonderful and we're going to win everyone over. And then the community turns out to be an absolute mess. And people, you be, become aware that people hate each other down the pews. Mm. And, the, and the, a community is just full of spite and vile, vicious, hateful things. And, uh, yeah. okay. <laughs> and I, and, Do you have and any more adjectives you want to use? Also good things, okay. yeah. <laughs> Also good things, but, um, but I, I'm wondering if you would think it, it's fair, w would you think it would be fair to tell a pastor, um, you are in that community for your own sanctification and for theirs. They are supposed to be together to work this out because that is spiritual formation. Do you think that would be a fair thing to say? Fair? Well, I don't know. Yeah. Or wiser or useful. I, I believe that. Everything we encounter, God wants to use for our formation. You know, every, everything. You know, when I'm in traffic in LA and I'm sitting there, I, I, you know, there are many options of what I can do with that experience of feeling stuck. <laughs> I don't have a gun under my seat, but, but I do, I really do think that whether it's a committee that's so disappointing and painful for you, or a really difficult marriage, or a special needs child, or a neighbor who never takes their trash cans in, not that I've ever had that. Um, but I just think all those things, because so much of it is about control. You know, so I think so much of what gets in the way of our spiritual formation is when we have an idea and an agenda, and, a, and I think like the poem I read, a time frame. We get impatient. Rather than recognizing that you know, that committee that you're working with you know, is full of really frightened, anxious, broken people, that for some reason they're, they're holding really tightly onto something because it's given them meaning or identity or value and they're really afraid if they let go of a worship style or whether the money goes to deacons directly or in the general budget or whatever, something really bad is going to happen. And so that, that's one thing I've been learning at Fuller's. I've had to read a lot of leadership books because you know, when you're alone in your office as a private practitioner, I've never had a boss before, 56 years old, First time I've really had a boss. But one of the things I really liked was this book by Heifetz called Adaptive Change, where he says leadership is helping people process loss at a rate they can accept. That really what leadership, because anytime leadership's happening, you're moving people into somewhere they haven't been, and that's a loss. So a good leader recognizes I have to help people process loss, not get frustrated with them, that they don't see my good vision and jump on the bandwagon. So, Bill, oh, I know you ask hard questions. I know, Bill. Uh, the softball, would you give us a working definition of spiritual formation? Okay. Well, one that I am working on is the formation of my life into the image of Christ for the sake of others and for my own enjoyment and good. I mean, there's, there's a way that I don't really have... I mean, what I what I really think is 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18 is my is my real definition of spiritual formation. But as I'm working on it, I think it is certainly 
because I'm a Christian. It's Christian spiritual formation. We are called to be formed into the image of Christ. And that happens with other people, and it happens over our entire lifetime. And it's not just for our own edification, but it really is for, my, for the world, for other people in the world. It's so that I can love you better. I can listen to you better. Is that, I know that's not satisfying. Your face does not like that answer. Well, let's, can we talk about it later and you can tell me yours? Or do you want to tell me yours right now? Well, what, what I mean by it is I do think it's what God actually intends for all humanity. All, we more get in the way of it. I think that spiritual formation is the, is the process of, from the time we're born, learning what it is to live our true lives in God, our true identity in God. I mean, the, and it's what God intends every human life to be about. All the other stuff starts to distract us and pull our attention to being shaped and formed not into the image of God, but into a successful person or an attractive person or a desirable person, a powerful person, a smart person. But I think spiritual formation really is, and it's informed by scripture, it's informed by my community, but it's, it's what God has intended every human life to just to find our rootedness and our transparency before God. And again, I think I, that's why I guess I don't like definitions. I think it will look really different for different people. But I think it is about love and it's about transparency before God. But maybe we can work on that more. And I've only been there two years. Maybe I'll have a better one in a year. <laughs> Anyone else? Yeah. Um, I'm trying to challenge myself as a pastor with years of trying to build the church. And I've just been kind of slapped in the face by a guy named Mike Breen who said, we build the church, but we don't, that doesn't necessarily get us disciples. Mm -hmm. And he's calling me, just me, he says, but if you build disciples, you always get the church. Hmm. I wonder how that plays into, because I mean, when I was at Fuller, I was a spiritual formation discipleship, but I found myself when I, got out of youth ministry, which I loved, because it was very much kind of discipleship-oriented to kind of build the church and all the programs and all of that kind of stuff. And it's so easy to get away from discipling people. Yeah. I wonder what you would... Well, how, do, how do we refit ourselves to do this discipleship process when the expectation of the churches we're in is that we'll keep on doing, building the church in the way that, you know, the programs and... Well, you know, what I, what I think of when you say that is in October, I met with this woman, Mindy Caliguire in Boulder, who was on the church, uh, the church staff at Willow Creek when they did their famous reveal study and saw that exactly what you're describing, that they had built an amazing church and people didn't really know Christ and were not growing deep in discipleship at all. And that's when they began really shifting the way they were attempting to gather and be church to include more spiritual formation. So I, I do think that just even the way you're saying that, what I would say, like even what I was saying to you, I think what it means to build the church is often about our own ego. I want to be successful. 
I want to I be that John Ortberg or that Bill Hybels or that whoever, that person that either has the intelligence, the charisma, the vision, the leadership to do something huge in the world. And I, and I don't think that really is about church very much at all. And I'm not saying that all those people have had that motive because God certainly blesses certain ministries. But if that's what I'm going into ministry, I really think it's more about am I significant? Do I have something to give that's going to be of value? Which is, which is a deep insecurity that I think most of us feel a lot of the time. So I, I, I think that that's why I think what's most important is that we, that's why we're working even at Florida now, try to help shape men and women that are going into all kind of ministries to be mature formed people so they can really hopefully not be wanting to build a church when they get out, but to be faithful, to be people that are understanding their own calling, to not be worried as much about numbers. And I know there's an ideal part because that's associated at times with money, but really deep down, when we believe God provides, are, are we shaping people to be successful or to be faithful? My struggle is, and I think you're trying to get at it, but I think it's going to take a lot of work, is to, that we've been taught to do it, or by yeah. example, seeing right. a lot of building of the church and how to even retool yeah. and the expectations of our people, like in my church, I think it's just going to be a struggle of, well, wait a minute, we like what you've been doing. Well, you know, <laughs> I guess what I can say in encouragement is a lot of times this doesn't happen until people burn out. I mean, that's really true. People try to do it that way and then something happens and they either... Um, have some kind, something blow up in their personal life or they get exhausted and then they kind of realize, wait, there's got to be another way to do this. But I guess what I want to encourage you is like just even the way that I was drawn to Jesus Christ was through the life I saw in this quiet woman who was a nun. And I, I truly believe that when you're in the presence of a person who's being transformed, who has a freedom and a joy and a life in them, that is so countercultural and attractive. You can't see that apart from the presence of God. And that's why something like what Ruth Haley Barton's doing with her transforming leadership groups in Illinois is so successful, is that she really has said, you can't bring a spiritual formation pastor onto your staff to get it done. You can't go to a conference, you can't get a video series, you have to be that person. You have to really look at where are you in this whole process of being with people, unveiled face. Are you a person who even knows how to be transparent? Because if you don't, like that's where you have to start. Okay, one more, and then I don't want to give you, I don't want to take away from your login time. Laura, thanks for coming and joining us. Really happy to have you here. You mentioned something in your vision about what if we could reduce the stigma as the church, reduce the stigma and increase shalom among people who are struggling with mental health issues. And I wonder if you could flesh out what has worked in your experience. And for me personally, I'm very interested in what might have worked well for you in the cases of people struggling with PTSD or with addiction. With PTSD or addiction? Well, those are two pretty different. I mean, people that are really in a raw place with PTSD have a lot of trouble being with crowds. And so part of what I think, um, even if you're just thinking about how a congregation begins to address that, um, 
the person again, I think, who's the leader, the, past, the, the, the pastoral staff, I think, needs to be able to preach and talk about that. Many of you in this room have had experiences with mental illness in one way or another. And I wonder if you ever talk about that. I mean, I think just bringing in stories about how you have dealt with that in your own family. Because in some ways, it is still very difficult. I think in, in a more traditional kind of church setting, lots of people that have mental illness don't want to come and sit for 50 minutes and, and do what a lot of people do in church. That wouldn't be soothing or comforting for them. And it's often really hard for the rest of the congregation. I had one woman I worked with who was, um, she had a very serious uh, diagnosis called schizoaffective disorder. She was very, she'd been hospitalized 21 times. She also had received her master's degree in math from Wake Forest. She taught English in a community college. She'd been a tennis pro and she'd been homeless. But she was brilliant. But she had a pastor, and if any of you know Jay Bartow from Monterey Presbyterian Church, God bless Jay Bartow. He would go to her place. She lived in a transitional, you know, like a halfway house for people struggling with mental illness. There's a one, there's something right there. I mean, do you know any homes in your community for people with mental illness? And do any of you ever go there? He would go to her apartment and play Bible trivia with her. Um, she would come to services, and when she was having more of a flare-up of her illness, she would sometimes run down the aisle with a tennis ball. She always, held, she always had a tennis ball with her, and she would hand Jay a tennis ball in the middle of his sermon. He would just take the tennis ball and say thank you and continue on with his sermon. They, they made a place for her unusual behavior, but it, that's really hard for a lot of people. So... I actually don't know, because most of my work has been more in private practice, but it's something I'm really working on at Fuller to try to have us even get a class that's taught. You know who's done, I think, the best job recently has been Saddleback. After, after Rick Warren's son committed suicide, that he's um, put on a conference for, I think now, two or three years in a row, an amazing mental health conference with lots of what I think you're looking for, lots of ways that churches can be creative about reaching out to people with mental illness. Okay, well, I want to stop because um, it is now 8.31, and I know login is a very important part. But now, will the mail thing tomorrow, or am I going to get letters? Yes. <laughs> you don't know? I won't know. I just have to wait and see? Okay. I hope I get a letter, if, if it's a nice one. Right. No, I don't hope. Oh. Okay, I don't want a T-shirt. I don't want a letter. All right. Thank you, Laura. Let's give her a good...